All right, thank you, Tez. Good morning. Now, this might surprise some of you, but in a previous life, I actually spent some time as a school teacher, right? That's right, poor kids. I spent one year teaching grades five to eight Bible, and it was truly a traumatic experience, at least for me, because it was during my time as a teacher and teaching that age group that I become fully convinced that the Bible is correct in saying that humans are truly born into sin. Because, friends, this job truly requires a heroic amount of patience to be able to deal with sinfulness on a daily basis, right? Not saying that they were only ever evil all the time. They can be very sweet sometimes, but kids of that age aren't great at hiding their sinfulness. Then there are some exceptionally difficult ones, and Lord, they test me. They test me. They got me forgetting the gospel and wanting to go back to the Old Testament. Okay, I'm joking, guys. The God of the Old Testament is gracious and merciful, too, and I never hurt any children, I promise. Okay. But anyway, what helped me even want to try to be gracious to them is by learning about their background, right? Where they come from, how they were raised, what their parents were like. Because when I began to see that, it made a lot of sense why these children would act out like this, right? I started to be able to see myself in them because I wasn't the easiest student myself. And I began to find myself responding to their misbehavior with grief instead of anger, while at the same time, when I saw growth, in, I rejoice instead of expecting them just to get it right, right? So understanding where they came from changed my entire attitude towards them. And this, friends, is what the text that we'll be studying today is trying to do for us, but with the characters that we'll meet as we study the Bible further. We'll be studying your favorite part of the Bible and mine, genealogies. Yay. Okay, and I understand this is one of those passages that we dread reading and are probably very tempted to skim through when we try to read through the Bible, and I certainly felt that way. However, this particular genealogy is one of the most important and interesting ones, right? Because this is not just a list of foreign names, but actually a very remarkable way of telling a story. We'll be studying Genesis 10, what theologians have historically called the table of nations, and the technical term for this genealogy is a symbolic ethnographic map, right? And what this means is that it is a way of thinking about people in regions. And its purpose in the biblical story is to make us to start categorize characters that we'll encounter in the story according to the traits that matches their ancestors, only to have these categories actually problematized by the Bible itself later. And specifically, in the genealogy that we'll see in this text, we'll start to sort every character we meet in the Bible to the categories of the sons of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. So for you Harry Potter fans, this might be a helpful analogy. It's kind of like, you know, the sorting hat. You guys remember this? Like, that puts students in each category. And throughout the story, we see either characters confirm the traits of the houses they're sorted to or subvert them, right? Like 
they're really brave, like you're, you would expect of a Gryffindor, or they'll be actually not that villainous as Slytherin's reputation should suggest. Maybe, that's a helpful illustration. Because what the Bible actually loves to do is give us very clear distinctions between good and evil, then subvert that expectation that everyone in that group is either good or evil, right? For example, through our genealogy, we'll set us up to expect that there will be conflict between the descendants of Shem and the descendants of Canaan. And we'll certainly see some of this conflict play out, but throughout the biblical narrative and its twists and turns, we'll see that being a Canaanite, for example, doesn't automatically mean that you're opposed to God or outside of God's plan to bless the world. Okay, that was a bit longer, but I hope that was, you know, helpful because I wanted you guys to really get what this text's function is in the larger context of the Bible before reading it. Now we're going to read this longer than usual text, but, and we're actually going to read a few verses uh, from where we left off last time, right? Noah's blessing and curses for his children. Because what Noah said there is actually meant to set our expectations for the list of nations that we're going to read, right? So brace yourself and do try to stay awake as we're going to read the whole table of nations from Genesis 10. And by the way, if you're a visual learner, it might be helpful for you to take your phones out and Google the table of nations map from Genesis 10, right? Because, you know, even though these are mostly educated guesses of where these places are, at least you can see them on a map and instead of just a list of some exotic names, okay? So we're finally going to read it. Bear with me as I butcher the pronunciations of these names. I'm only 50% sure <laughs> at most, and it's how it's actually pronounced, okay? This is the Word of God. Genesis 9, verse 25. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And, and now Genesis 10. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Yavan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Togarmath. The sons of Yavan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, Dodonim. From these, the coastland people spread their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sapta, Rama, and Saptika. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalne in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt, Father Ludim, Anamim, Lechabim, Naphtahim, Pathrashim, Kashalim, 
from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon to the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. The Shem, also, the father of all the children of Ever. The elder brother of Japheth, the children were born. The sons of Shem, Alam, Ashur, Aprachshad, Lud, Aram. The sons of Aram, Uts, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Aprachshad fathered Shelah, Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber born two, were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Yoktan. Yoktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Oval, Avimael, and Sheba. Ophir, Havilah, and Yobab. All these were the sons of Yoktan. A territory in which they live extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. From these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. All right, how are you guys doing? So, <laughs> so if any of you were counting, and if there were, kudos, you might have noticed that there were, in fact, 70 descendants of Hem, Sham, and Japheth. And this indicates that this list was never supposed to be an exhaustive list of every single descendant of Noah. Nowhere is this list you know, a list of all the nations that exist. In fact, it explicitly says twice in verse 5 and 21 that there are more nations than there are listed here that are spread all over the world, right? Which means that this is a curated list meant to make a point because the number 70 itself is a typological number in the Bible that indicates completeness on a large scale. And you can even see sublists of seven here in the list itself to emphasize this idea of completeness, though not necessarily comprehensiveness. Are you following me? So the number of people here is a literary device to convey the totality of the human race, right? Because the larger point, I think, that this list is trying to make is that there is a real and important sense in which we humans are unified. And our text discusses at least three things of the, about the unity of the human race, okay? Our three points. One, we are part of the same family. Two, that keeps on fracturing for the same reasons. And three, but we'll be reunified by the same spirit. We're part of the same family that keeps on fracturing for the same reasons, but we'll be unified, reunified by the same spirits, okay? We're not going to talk all about, the about all the names, right? But we'll mention here that are flagged uh, as important in the text, okay? Let's get into it. Point one, we are part of the same family. 
So we start off here in our genealogy with a list of the sons of Japheth. And unsurprisingly, we're given seven sons of Japheth and seven grandsons. And uh, through it, it lists uh, the least number of names, right? It, but it is actually portraying this group as the largest in population and is spread across the largest geographic area. And if you look at the map where the descendants of Yafith are going, they were supposedly going to the areas to the far north and far west of Israel. So in the modern day, the sons of Yafith would cover the areas of Turkey, right? Eastern Europe, Ashkenaz, Greece, that's what Yavan is, Italy, that's what Kitim is. So it's like the wider Mediterranean world. And even mentions Tarshish as the grandson of Yafith. Now, nobody knows where Tarshish actually is, right? Some speculate it might be Spain. But wherever it was, as far as the biblical authors are concerned, is like the furthest possible place from where they are, at the end of the world. It's like Kamang to anybody who lives in North Jakarta. Jonah, in fact, tries to run from God, to flee from him by catching a boat the Tarshish, okay? So I think it's safe to say that the sons of Japheth here represent the culture that are most distant from Israel, both geographically and culturally. And we'll actually encounter these nations the least in the biblical narrative. It's almost like the sons of Japheth is a catch-all category for everyone else in the earth, all the nations, even the most foreign and exotic ones. So since this is such a general category, what is super important about them is actually said in chapter 9, verse 27, that the sons of Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. And it's not referring, friends, that they're not going to be camping with the sons of Shem. Rather, dwelling in the same tent communicates this sort of unity, right? A sort of coming together, a son, sort of camaraderie, some fellowship or koinonia, or to use the New Testament language to describe this, between God's people and even the most distant relatives, even the most different people. But remember, to the original readers of this text, these guys are as different as you can get, having a completely different culture, language, religion, and appearance. But nonetheless, the table of nations here is saying to Israel that they are indeed still blood relatives and therefore are still partakers of the same blessing available to the people of God. See, this theme is picked up by Isaiah, how the lands of the people of Japheth, the coastland peoples who will dwell in these decent lands, those who have not heard of God's fame and seen His glory, they will likewise honor God the God of Shem. And if we look all the way to the final book of the Bible, the revelation, the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, when God's purpose is where the world finally comes to fruition, the image there is that there will be a multitude too great to count of every nation, tribe, and tongue being united in peace with Jesus as King. This, friends, is how our story ends. Therefore, the biblical narrative has a very hopeful picture of the destiny of the human family, that no matter how far away from each other or how far apart we might be spread, no matter how different we become, every human 
still has a common origin and an absolute unity. We are this big international family because no matter what, we are still sons of Adam. We are still images of God. This is the most important fact about every single human being we will ever meet. And uh, I guess for us living nowadays, you know, post-colonialism, post-civil rights movements, post-human genome project, it's easy for us to take this for granted, right? Like, duh, obviously, everyone knows that. But this would not have been taken for granted for its original Israelite leader, uh, readers. In fact, many of the ancient cultures surrounding Israel, even some cultures surviving today, part of the core mythology of their origin is that they were the only ones truly made by the gods. They were the only ones who truly had divine origin, and therefore everybody else were not and somehow subhumans, which means it gave them some kind of divine right to subjugate or oppress other people. They get to be the ones in charge. But the narrative of the Bible completely undermines this. And thank God, friends, that by His common grace, this biblical worldview has influenced the world such that this prejudiced kind of thinking is outrightly thought of immoral and backward. Such that now, the equality, the equal dignity of the human race is universally understood to be a good thing by everyone, even by those who don't believe in the Bible at all. So the implication of this, I think, is this, right? That whatever it is that we might want to use to divide the human race, whatever it is that we think distinguishes one person from another, their culture, their language, their wealth, their social position, their education, whatever it is, all of that is secondary to this essential unity. But man, we are so laughably bad at living consistently with this truth. Because if we did see other people primarily as images of God, as family members, diversity shouldn't make us uncomfortable. And our, per and our disposition, our posture towards other people should never be one of competition, but one of collaboration and cooperation. And it should ideally be the case that we'd be so eager to show hospitality to others and to welcome them as one of our own, welcoming others into the tent instead of closing the door. And I actually believe, friends, we all want to be able to be like this. I believe that none of us likes having to be guarded, feeling like we have to constantly watch our backs or being very hesitant to trust anyone. However, tragically, it just doesn't feel safe and it just doesn't feel wise to do so in our world. It's not realistic for us, it seems like, to be so open and vulnerable to others. And even perhaps to some of us, relating this way even with our immediate family, feels scary and complicated. Brothers and sisters, sadly, though it is the case, we are one big international family. The Bible is also very realistic and acknowledges that it is indeed a broken family. Constantly getting into conflict, constantly doing each other harm, 
And the Bible teaches us there is but one reason why this keeps on happening. Just point two. We're part of the same family that keeps on fracturing for the same reasons. Now look at the sons of Ham here in verses 6 to 20. You can count there's a list of 30 of them. So they're the largest group here mentioned, and they generally cover a territory to the east and to the south of Israel, so towards Iran and down to uh, northern Africa, towards Algeria and Ethiopia. And what would immediately stick out to you if you were an Israelite, and Tez mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, is that all of the major antagonists that God's people had to meet uh, came from these guys. Babylonians, Assyrians, Egyptians, Philistines, seemingly all of the evil empires that caused the most problems for the people of God were the sons of Ham, right? So if we went back to the Harry Potter analogy, these guys are Slytherin, right? And there are a couple of interesting details here that I think is worth mentioning. First, notice the last set of descendants that is mentioned are the sons of Ham in verse 15 to 20, the descendants of Canaan. And if you look all the way back to chapter 9, verse 25, Canaan is the one who is cursed. Not Ham, but Canaan. And if you count the numbers of descendants of Canaan, how many do you get? There are 12. Now, who else had 12 sons and were promised by God the land of Canaan? Israel, right? You see, the Canaanites are the people that Israel will interact with the most, have conflict with the most as they settle in to the promised land, right? They'll be the ones who are most troublesome. They'll have the most fights. And what the author of Genesis is doing here is it's portraying Canaan as the anti-Israel, the cursed line, as opposed to the uh, line through whom God will bless the world, the seed of the serpent instead of the seed of the woman, and what this genealogy is telling us is this cursed line comes from the same family as all those evil empires, right? They are birds of a feather, if you will. They're one of a kind. But what Genesis 10 tells us here is that actually they're not cursed because they're born into a certain family but rather that there is something which runs in the family which keeps on perpetuating the curse in the family, which is the second thing that we can notice here about the descendants of Ham. Notice with me verse 9 to 12. In the middle of this very long genealogy, suddenly the text shifts into a narrative centered around this guy called Nimrod. Now, Nimrod itself means we will rebel in Hebrew. And we're told that he is both the father of Assyria and Babylon, like the top two, like two of the top three worst nations from the perspective of Israel. They were the ones who destroyed the land of Israel and sent them into exile. And we are told here that Nimrod was a mighty man, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, if you've been with us and been tracking the narrative of Genesis at this point, this description of mighty man should be sounding alarm bells to you. Because when was the last time we met these mighty men in the story of the Bible? It's talking about the Nephilim, right? 
who filled the world with so much violence that God had to send this cataclysmic flood to end all flesh, to deal with it back in chapter 6, verse 4. And we're even told that Nimrod's killing prowess is so great and admired that his name has become a proverb. Maybe a contemporary equivalent is like how if someone is so smart, we call him Einstein. Or if someone is a fan of basketball, if someone hits a tough game-winning shot, we'll be like, Kobe. Right? So it's like back then, if you hit a deer from like a mile away, you say, like Nimrod, I guess. So as the reader, we're reading this and we're supposed to go, oh no, this again. I know how this ends. Because the point here that the Genesis author is trying to make is that the corruption of the human race that warranted the flood back in chapter 6 still exists and continues to wreak havoc in God's world. And what that is, is evident in his name, that there continues to be people like Nimrod, who lives in a posture of rebellion against God, whose name is famous because he's able to lord his power over people through violence. And what's worse is that these are the kinds of people that are looked up to as heroes, as role models, creating whole cultures and societies of violence and systems where might is right. In other words, to borrow how Tezar puts it a couple of weeks ago, the problem with the world, why the human family keeps on fracturing, is because we live in a disordered world. We live in a world where trusting God and preserving life is not the highest virtue. Rather, our world glorifies self-sufficiency and independence. We admire those who can take matters into their own hands and play by their own rules. We continue to create cultures and systems that rewards us when we act based on greed and self-interest. Though it might not come in the form of violence today, but it's not hard, friends, to see this rampant disorder around us how, and how, at least for men, right, the culture thinks that it's impressive if a man can selfishly fulfill his own sexual desires and have as many sexual partners as possible. And how society normalizes or even commends compro compromising our closest relationships and our ethical convictions for the pursuit of money and power. And how we live in a world where the value, the worth of a person is determined by their ability to generate wealth or their influence and not by their ability to love God and what He has created. Just to name a few. So our world, guys, is screwed up. Our values are twisted. Our moral compasses have been scrambled. What's good is bad, and what's bad is good. And because as a whole, we refuse to trust God to show us what is truly good, and we happily rebel against Him so that we can get our way. Consequently, in this state, we can never attain the unity that God has always intended for the human family. We'll keep on hurting each other for our own selfish ambitions. It'll always be a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and we're always going to be looking out for number one. Have you noticed this in our world? Have you noticed this in your own life? Unfortunately, this realization for me 
often has come at a cost of some damage I've done or some relationship out there that I've broken. This is the tragic condition that the human family is in. So what then is the solution? How can a human race that's been so fractured and so stuck in our sin ever go back to the unity God intended for us? And the Bible's answer to that is through the line of Shem, which is point three. We're part of the same family that keeps on fracturing for the same reasons, but we will be unified by the same spirit. We end this genealogy in verses 21 and following with the descendants of Shem, the blessed protagonist line, the line that will produce all the heroes of the Bible, Abraham, David, and eventually Jesus Christ himself, right? So this is the house of Gryffindor, the guys we are rooting for. And in a really clear way, this is seen in how one particular descendant of Shem is highlighted in verse 21, specifically that he is the ancestor of this guy named Ever. Fun fact, Ever is actually where the word Hebrew comes from. And the people of Israel refer to themselves as Hebrews, even to this day. And what's most striking about this part of the genealogy is that this supposedly blessed is actually a family that ends up being a fractured one as well. We see in verse 25, when we finally get to Ever, it's written that he has two sons, the first Peleg, whose name is actually Division, and the other one is Yoktan. Later, in chapter 11, we're going to continue the story through the descendants of Peleg. But we end this genealogy here in chapter 10 with the sons of Shem with a list of another 12 sons of Yoktan, which again is hardly coincidental because as with the sons of Canaan, the sons of Yoktan serves to also be a contrast to Israel. And what's noticeably different about the sons of Yoktan and it's very easy to miss this detail, is that they are said to have lived way out in the east. Okay, if you've been closely following the story of Genesis, this should alert us to something. Because remember, where did Adam and Eve go when they were banished from the Garden of Eden? East. Where did Cain go when he was exiled? East. Where did Lamech and Cain's murderous descendants build their cities? East. And guess where in the next story, the next great act of rebellion is going to happen? In the east, around the plains of Shinar, where the city that this guy, Nimrod, we will rebel, will build. See what's going on here? The Bible is trying to set up the east as this symbolic kind of place, a place where rebellion happens. And the fact that a descendant of the chosen line becomes associated with these rebels is showing us that the pattern is already subverting. Because it's meant to show that being born into a certain family or a certain ethnic group or a certain religious background or whatever demographic distinctions you want to make, it does not guarantee that we will not end up rebelling against God. Or to be super contemporary, being born a Christian and growing up in the church doesn't guarantee that we'll partake in the blessings God has for us. This is why I think it is so significant that way back in chapter 9, verse 26, if you look closely, Noah doesn't actually bless Shem. 
It clearly says, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. The Lord there is intentionally in all caps because the word that's used, that's translated as Lord, is the personal name of God, Yahweh. So what this is trying to teach us, friends, is that this blessedness doesn't actually come from being a physical descendant of Shem, but having a personal relationship with the God of Shem. Because this personal, intimate relationship with God is the only way anyone can stop rebelling and have our moral compasses recalibrated towards Him who is the true source of all good. And only when we're pointing in the same direction, when we're oriented towards the same Lord, will it be possible for us to be united under one tent, as Noah's blessing says. So guess what happens if we go all the way to the New Testament? After Jesus paid for the sins of the world on the cross and rose from the dead, Jesus ascended to heaven 40 days later, and then 10 days after that, what happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out. Remember this? And remember what happened in Acts 2 when the Spirit was poured out? The disciples were filled with the Spirit, started speaking in the native languages of people from a list of nations. And if you look at that list and cross-reference the list of nations there from the genealogy we're studying today, we can notice that there are people there intentionally from the lands of Japheth, from the land of Ham, hearing the gospel and worshiping the God of Shem as Lord. So what the Bible is showing us here that the scattered family of God is already beginning to reunite by the Holy Spirit. This is why, friends, a crucial part of our doctrine of salvation is this doctrine of adoption, which teaches us that Jesus' death on the cross does not only clear us of the legal penalties of our rebellious sin, but it also simultaneously, when we are saved by Christ, our relationship with God is changes, changes. It is restored. We become adopted into the household of God, and now we relate with God in the most intimate way possible as Father. This is an incredible privilege. And inseparable from that privilege is that our relationship with those who are gathered under this Lord also changes with those who are gathered in the tent also changes such that we are no longer simply strangers but siblings we are siblings in a very real way in the eyes of god that is the beautiful vision of god's family that we're enjoying here today and just seeing our church if you look around people of all nations gathered under the same Lord. And it's supposed to be a blessed experience. But I realize and understand, perhaps for many of you, church hasn't felt that way or doesn't feel this way right now. I know some of us has felt hurt by the church and even have a hard time being okay with people at church. And friends, the only way we can ever fix that and get on the same page is if we all together uh, embrace this utterly self-sacrificial, other-focused 
ethic that Jesus showed us through his life and through his teaching. So we got to make every effort to follow him. And we got to hold each other accountable to this unity. Because the more that we do it, the more we actually experience the human family, human relationships as God intended. But if you're here and you're new to Christianity and you've never experienced this relationship with God, if you don't think you're on good terms with our God, with this God of Shem, there's one thing that I hope you remember today, that this God is offering you a relationship with Him. Whatever you've done, whomever you've hurt, no matter how far you've gone, God will still accept you as His child. And every single member of this church has made a vow before God to do their best, to do our best, to love you as a sibling. So will you let us? I hope you will. Let's pray, guys. Blessed are you, Lord, the God of all nations. Lord, you created us to reflect your glory, united, but not as a monolith in diversity. Thank you, Father, for sending us your Son to reconcile ourselves with you. Thank you, Father, for sending on your Holy Spirit to break down the walls we put up against one another so that we may be one united people under you. Let that not be just a simple fact that we take for granted, but may it be a thing that we are grateful for and that we rejoice in daily in our lives. Convict us, Lord, when we fail to appreciate this reality. Soften our hearts that we may accept other people and embrace them as our brothers and sisters, as you have embraced us as your child. Allow us to see, Father, other people the way you see them, that we may share the blessing that you've given us to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.